the big message is, is that if you don't manage up, meaning managing your boss and the relationships above you, you won't have to worry about managing down because mm. you won't have a job. For me, I was taken out by a wave I never saw coming. And that wave was, you know, the people above me in the organization and some of my peers. Welcome to Create New Futures, thought-provoking conversations with leaders, experts, and interesting minds. Join us as we explore ideas and reflect on practices that you can use and apply to create and shape the future. With your host, author, and strategy consultant, Aviv Shahar. Welcome to Create New Futures, where we develop conversations with successful leaders to explore how you can create new futures for you and for your organization. This is Aviv, and today I'm speaking with Roberta Matheson. Roberta is the president of Matheson Consulting, where she has helped leaders in Fortune 500 companies, including Best Buy, GM, and New Balance. Clients turn to Roberta for advice on matters related to talent. She is known as the talent maximizer. Roberta is the author of Talent Magnetism and the bestseller, Sadly in Charge. Her newest book that we want to talk about is Evergreen Talent. A sought-after speaker, Roberta regularly appears on Fox, CNN, as well as other radio and television business shows. Roberta, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Thank you, Aviv. It's terrific to be here. Let's dive right in and let me ask you first to reflect on all the facets of your work. And when you look at the totality of your work, what do you enjoy the most and why? Well, I really enjoy helping organization create workplaces where employees love to come to work and customers love to do business. I find that, you know, in life is so short that to go to work every day and to be unhappy seems a bit unfair. So I'm on a mission to change that. And when did you know and how did you uh, get into discovering that this was going to be the focus of your work? Well, I knew that when I worked for a financial consulting firm and I was in a situation where I had a horrific experience and I wound up working for a woman who was, you know, I can't even describe her, but she was everything you shouldn't be in a leader. And as a result, I found myself in the evenings going to a meditation class hmm. because I needed to figure out a way to settle myself. And it wasn't until I realized that I would rather be taking a salsa dancing class. And I couldn't do that because I was so busy, like every night going meditating, that I, I didn't have room in my schedule. And so I realized that I didn't need to stay in a toxic work environment and that nobody should have to work in an environment like that. Right. And so I'm happy to say that today I know how to salsa dance. <laughs> uh, very nice. This is curious because I often discover that I'm compelled to tell the teams that I work with, look, you're spending more time with your coworkers than with your loved ones. And not only that, you're spending often the best time when you are most fresh, most energized. So we not only must this be a meaningful experience and one where you are 
uh, growing and learning and developing through the experience, it must be something that's rewarding to you or else it makes no sense. Especially Absolutely. in the U.S., that's, that's the case. Absolutely. And I think that leaders don't quite comprehend how much influence they have on the people that work for them. That when those people go home at night, they don't just forget about that crappy conversation that they had. You know, they keep that and they keep replaying those tapes in their head over and over again. And then they bring that into their home life. So it's just a vicious cycle. So connect the dots for me. So the focus on healthy and rewarding and one that's perhaps best in the industry kind of work environment became the focus. And was it that that led you to focusing on talent or the, the two simply came together? Obviously, the, there is a connection, but these are uh, nuanced focuses. Well, you know, I think all of our experiences define who we are. And early on in my career, at the age of 24, I was promoted into management, into an executive role. And I learned the hard way of what not to do as an executive. <laughs> and miraculously, I lasted for six years. And as a result of that, I decided that nobody else should have to go through what I went through. And I wrote my first book, Suddenly in Charge. And that book has gone on to be an international bestseller. And last week, it hit number one on Amazon in, in many categories. So I feel like I must have hit a, a nerve. And as a result of that, you know, I just keep building on the work of being a great leader. The economy, we've got 3.5% unemployment nationally, 2% here in Boston where I live. And as a result, you as a leader have to do everything you can to not only attract great people, but you have to keep them. What was the big message? What is the big message of suddenly in charge? The big message is, is that if you don't manage up, meaning managing your boss and the relationships above you, you won't have to worry about managing down because mm. you won't have a job. For me, I was taken out by a wave I never saw coming. And that wave was you know, the people above me in the organization and some of my peers. So the discovery is that at every stage, at every level, at every role in your career, you need to manage up, you need to manage down, you need to manage sideways, you need to manage in all directions. Absolutely. And you have to very carefully manage the relationships all around you. Sometimes I find that leaders think, well, if I'm a good manager, if I take good care of my people and I manage them well, I'm going to get promoted. I'll be noticed. And if only it were that simple. Indeed. We're recording this in early 2020, uh, mid-February 2020. And so what would you say are the, the top trends, perhaps the top three trends in talent and talent development that we must uh, pay attention to at this time? Well, the first trend is that you have to actively seek out talent. Those days of positioning yourself as, oh, people would be so lucky if they got to work here are long gone. And so you have to actively promote yourself as a leader and your brand, as well as the employer brand, and you have to actively attract people to your organization. That's number one. Number two, every manager needs to understand that hiring is their number one priority, and that hiring is not 
just an HR function. Right now, HR can't even fill their own job openings. I'm not quite sure how they're going to fill yours. And then the third piece is that people really want to feel a connection and they want to feel that their employer has a vested interest in them and they want to feel like they're learning and that they're being developed. And that's why today so much of my work is around executive coaching and helping leaders become the best kind of leaders that they can be. Right. The best kind of leaders in the sense of building great teams and promoting those people to realize their fullest potential to grow and to create an impact. Absolutely. So when you brought that to that focus and, and that kind of passion to evergreen talent, why did you write the book and what were the key messages you were hoping to communicate? Well, that's an interesting question because when I first started thinking about writing the book, I think unemployment was at maybe 4.5%. And it, this is nationally in the US. And I remember thinking, oh my goodness, look how low it is. I mean, it just can't get any lower, right? And then every you know, month or two, the numbers kept dropping. And it was at that point that I realized, you know, we're in a whole new territory here. And companies can't continue to do what they're doing and expect to get better results in terms of finding people, hiring people, and most importantly, keeping people. Mm. And so that's why I made the decision that, you know, now is the time to write Evergreen Talent. And what are the big one or two key messages in the book? Well, the key message goes back to the fact that you have to develop your own people. You can't expect today with the competition that's out there that you're going to fill every single role with people that can walk in the door and do these jobs without any training. And so organizations need to take the time to really think about people that will invest in their organization and then give them the tools and develop them so that they can grow in place. So you are describing the, the current employment environment. And, and one of the points you make is that employers complain that they can't fill the jobs while at the same time, job seekers complain that they can't find work. What are the reasons for such a disconnect? Well, I think there are a number of reasons. As I mentioned earlier, I think HR people are so overwhelmed that their whole focus is on screening candidates out and not in. They don't have a lot of time to focus because most of these people are doing more than just recruiting as part of their jobs. And I think a lot of employers are still not positioned very well in terms of their employer brand, why somebody would want to come work for them. And they don't realize that the first thing somebody does when they see a job opportunity is to go onto the company website. And if they don't see people that look like them or they don't get a feeling of energy or they don't feel like, oh, wow, this looks like a place that I might like working, like they're moving on. And so I think a lot of companies are still using practices back from the 1980s to try to attract and retain talent. And clearly it's not working. What are the best practices? First, we'll talk about retaining talent in, in a minute, but what are you seeing that the best companies do in finding, discovering, and attracting the best talent to join them? 
the best companies are turning their entire teams into recruiting machines. Mm. And they're giving every person in the organization the skills and the training needed in order to go out and find the talent and bring the talent in. They're also looking for talent where no one else is looking. There was just an article, I think it was in the journal yesterday on Amazon. Amazon is no longer focusing their MBA recruitment on the top 10 schools. They've now decided instead to look at 80 schools. I think that's rather interesting. Yes. And so you are saying every manager, for sure, every leader in, in the enterprise, they must view themselves as a talent officer, so to speak, at least for their team and, and their organization. This is their job one. Apart from running the business or even on, on top of running the business, whatever they run, this is their job one. Yes, because if they don't have any people, they're going to have a real hard time running the business. In your book, you also write about the need, as you said, that you spoke to already now, for companies to nurture and develop their own talent. And you're, you're just making the point that this must be the, the job of the leader. First, get the best people around and then make sure that the work experience is one through which people can get to learn, to develop as, as professionals. I think we understand already why this is critical, given everything you're sharing. But what do you see are the best leaders and what do you see the, the best teams? What do they actually do to make the employment experience different? Well, they give people autonomy. They allow people to manage their own schedules. I mean, today, if you think about it, I can't think of one person I know who isn't either taking care of a young child or an elderly parent. You know, there's so many demands today. And so the need for flexibility is really important. And the companies that are doing the best job of attracting people and retaining people are those organizations that offer things like workplace flexibility, the ability to work wherever you are, whenever you want. I mean, there's just a lot of things that companies can do today rather than saying, well, that's not how we do things here. That's not our practice. Yes. Give me a comment on two topics that I'm very interested about. One is first, the, the new generation of people coming into the workforce. How are they different or how are they the same to previous generation? Question one, and then weave that for me, please, with a comment on the different generations that need to now collaborate in the work environment. What are we learning? What is the research telling us about the challenges and the opportunities there? Well, I have personal experience with the latest generation, Generation Z. I have two college-age students who are actually in the workforce as well. So I can speak to that from what I'm observing. And that's the fact that they are so used to technology. They want to be measured on results and not FaceTime. And when I say FaceTime, I don't mean Facebook FaceTime. You know, my kids can do, you know, when it comes to technology and computers and apps, they can do things in half the time that it takes me. Yet, you know, they're still required to stay at their desk till 5 p.m., even though their jobs might be, they might be 
finish with their tasks at three. And so I think there's this level of frustration that why do I have to, why am I being penalized for being so quick? Um, They're also used to having a lot of feedback. And I find that the one thing managers really don't like to do is give employees feedback. And yet, if you think about the parenting, and I'm guilty as the next parent, you know, we've given our children lots of praise. (laughs) And now they're in the workforce, and they expect to be given praise. And they also expect to be told if they're not doing something so well. And when they don't get that, then they think that their manager doesn't really care about them. And when the phone rings with a new opportunity, they don't think twice about hopping to the next job. What do you um, coach to managers and leaders in terms of feedback? What is the best practice that you encourage them to implement? To consider that every day is a day to talk about performance and not just to talk about performance twice a year, you know, at the mid-year review or at the annual review, and that they should give feedback when they see things happening and be very specific about that feedback and not just say, hey, that was a great job. Say, you know, hey, that was a great job. I love the fact that you took the initiative to call our client rather than wait for him to call us. Right. Because now the, right, now the employee knows, oh, I did this well. I should do this more often, not just, oh, I'm doing a great job. So behavioral-based and behaviorally observed kind of feedback and result-based feedback should be the, the way to approach this. And you're saying, do this daily, do this on point. And I imagine both for what works well, but also for what doesn't work well, where we can harvest some learning. Yes, yes. So and let's address the other questions that I asked earlier. Given that there are now different generations in the workforce, and obviously we can't generalize, but I'm curious what, what are you seeing and, and what are you coaching to, to leaders in terms of facilitating the best work environment for those cross generations where they have sometimes different expectations from work, different expectations from the experience of work, but guess what? They need to collaborate on solving big problems. Well, you know, I do a lot of work on the generations in the workplace and helping customers and clients understand the different generations. But at the end of the day, when I do that work, I say we have more in common than you might think. And if you think about what do most people want from their jobs, most people want to feel satisfied with the work they're doing. Most people want to have a sense of purpose. We talked earlier about they want flexibility. They want to be growing and learning. And so if we focus on what they have in common and we address those issues, then we find that we don't have to be so schizophrenic, right? And try to think about, oh, this person is 40 and she wants that. And this person is 25 and he wants that. I mean, if we focus on those core items, we can make everyone happy. What do we know about the satisfaction levels? What are the the factors that create for people the the sense of a satisfying work? What what is the research or what, what do we know about that? Well, the research consistently shows three things. Um, One is having a great boss. I mean, that's just consistent over time. We've seen that. Uh, The second piece is autonomy, being able to have control over your work. And the third piece is having a sense of purpose. Like, why am I here? Why am I coming to work every day? 
how is my work making a difference? Right. Are these the same three principles that you bring to your philosophy about employee engagement? And, and what else, what other considerations and or strategies do you recommend and, and coach to leaders to bring about the, the highest level of engagement? Well, yes, to your first question. And to the second question, what I try to get across to my clients is that employee engagement is not a program. It's an outcome. Mm. And we're spending billions of dollars on employee engagement programs, yet we still have some of the highest levels of disengaged employees. And so we have to stop thinking of it as a program. Oh, we're going to put an employee engagement program in. And instead, we have to look at, well, what are the outcomes? What is it that we want to achieve? What does employee engagement mean for our organization? How do we work backwards to create this environment where our fe- people feel satisfied? And so what are the, the main factors, the additional factors? You, you spoke about the criticality of the leader and how they impact their experience, the criticality of meaning at work, having a purpose, and the criticality of finding ways to continue to grow and learn and develop through the job. If you needed to add factor four or five, what would these be? I wouldn't want to add more factors. Okay. I would want to focus on the most important factors, which always comes back to the leader. And, you know, I'm sure a lot of your listeners right now, if I, I said, you know, take out a piece of paper and a pen, and I want you to write down three leaders in your organization who, if they were gone tomorrow, you'd be thrilled. <laughs> okay. I bet you they could come up with at least three. And so in every company, it seems like there are people who are in management that should not be in management. They were mm-hmm. not the right people to start with. And so... We have to start and focus. We can't just keep adding things to the list. It's nice to have this long list of six items, but the reality is if you can change one or two of these items on the list, which would you change and which would give you the best results quickest? You talk about the need for pruning the workforce on an ongoing basis. How do you mean that and, and what are some practices that you recommend? Well, that's an interesting topic because last week, um, a big tech company, furniture company in Boston, Wayfair, announced that they were reducing their workforce by 250 people. And wow, that just sounded like a really big number, right? That, that made headlines. Yet when I went online to you know, see, well, how many people work at Wayfair? I think it was like 56,000. And I just thought to myself, oh, this isn't a restructuring. This is, this is pruning like big time. And so we really haven't taken the time to kind of get rid of our dead wood. We haven't taken the time to assess who should stay where we planted them and who needs to go. And so now we're going to call it a restructuring. And we will get rid of all these people at the same time. Right. Which is never a good thing. And so this is where you bring the metaphor of look at your workforce as a forest. It needs continual maintenance. It needs continual cultivation and pruning. Yes, yes. I mean, you know, I tell people this all the time. If you were to hire me into your company, I'm the person that should build out your, your organization. 
I'm really great at building it. I'm not the person you'd want running it. So after I built it, you'd be best to kind of prune and say, hey, you did an awesome job. It's been nice knowing you. Let us help you find your next opportunity. But if you kept me for years, I mean, I would, I would not be adding as much value. And there are a lot of companies, especially those in the startup stage that go to the next stage, that have great people who have started these companies, but they're not the people needed to take it to the next level. Yes. So in addition to those examples you just offered us, what are some other critical mistakes that companies make that could prevent them from growing their own, what you call, evergreen talent? Well, you know, if you don't make room for new people, then, you know, as our mentor, Alan Weiss says, you start to breathe your own exhaust, right? No, you're not getting any fresh ideas. You're just like, you know, preaching to the choir every day. And so you really have to make room and make sure that when you're hiring also that you bring in people from diverse backgrounds that can bring in new and innovative ideas and not just hire more of the same, which is what a lot of companies tend to do. Yes. Tell me about your collaboration with LinkedIn and what have you learned through sharing your content on LinkedIn? I've learned that it's an awesome platform. <laughs> I've got about 103,000 subscribers to my LinkedIn newsletter, The Talent Maximizer. And I'll post an article at 9 a.m. in the morning. And by 10 a.m., it's probably gotten about 5,000, 7,000 hits and, you know, tons of comments. And so I think there's a lot of activity going on on LinkedIn. And I think it's also a great way for companies to go through the back door and poach talent. There's no secretaries anymore and no gatekeepers preventing you from messaging someone directly. So, but from your end, it is partly a research enterprise, partly brand building and partly anthropological uh, fieldwork. Sometimes it also leads to business, but I imagine that's not necessarily the, prime, the most prime aspect of the work. Surprisingly, it's led to a lot of business. Okay. A lot of people will reach out to me um, who are looking for executive coaches. Companies, head of companies will reach out to me after reading an article I might have posted about talent. So it's definitely a market, a marketing generator. But you're right. For me, it's like my little, uh, you know, experiment where I can put out content and see what resonates and engage with people who might not normally have conversations with me. Yeah, delicious. You mentioned that you have uh, two wonderful people that you raised that have entered the, the <coughs> workforce or are, are about to enter the, the workforce. So I'll ask the question broadly, but I'm sure you can comment through them. Uh, I am interested in, in the broad perspective in terms of what are some of the most critical competencies and skills that you recommend people that are about to enter or have entered the workforce that they must focus on? They have to focus on experience. I am very fortunate. My children both attend the same college and it's Drexel University in Philadelphia and Drexel has a co-op program. 
And as a requirement for graduation, they're required to work, you know, in a job in their field. And what I'm finding today from friends of mine whose kids have graduated from some very prestigious colleges, these kids are having a hard time finding a job and they've never really interviewed. They have no work experience. And so they have very little to offer. And so to any student that might be listening or to any parent who's even looking at different colleges right now is to find a college where they are either required to do a co-op or they're required to do an internship. It will make a huge difference. And then once they are in the workforce and they got their, say, their first role and they're, they're a couple of years in to beginning to developing their career and they're still wondering what really they should go after. They, they've had some education and they, they have a starting intention, but more often than not, I hear from people earlier in the career that they're still wondering how to navigate, how to focus the career. What, what are some broad recommendations that you offer in scenarios like these? Well, I, I would tell them to download my book, Suddenly in Charge, because half the book is on managing up. And that piece is all about how to swiftly navigate through an organization, through the office politics, how to toot your own horn so you can be heard in a sea of cubicles. There's just so much information in there that you're not taught in school, even if you have a business degree. And it's how to survive, you know, how to work through the informal network that is the world of business. And part of that is, is how to identify the influencers in Mm-hmm. every ecosystem and how to build the, the kind of relationship with those influencers that will help you indeed not just uh, survive, but thrive. Absolutely. I have two more questions to ask you. First, if you were to lose all that you know and keep only two ideas or only two capabilities or only two practices, what would you keep? Well, I would keep my love of travel <laughs> because I think that people who travel, um, you know, and especially if you travel the world, which I do, gives you a whole different perspective. And we are working in a global workplace. I mean, every workplace is global. My son in college, I mean, his three roommates, I think like it's the UN where he lives. People, you know, it's good to experience how other people see the world. And I think that makes you a better leader. And I know for me, it makes me a better advisor to my clients. And then I have to pick another, huh? Indeed. <laughs> oh, I don't know if I can do that. Okay. Uh, I can offer you back is maybe your know-how about people and how people respond in different situations because that that skill, that competency, that sensibility is always in need. Yes, that's very true. I think I have a really keen sense of what people are thinking and more importantly, what they're feeling. Mm. And people make decisions based on emotion. And they're going to decide whether or not to take a job or stay in a job based on how they're feeling. They're not just going to run the numbers. So I think you're right. Thank you, Roberta, for this um, exploration, rich exploration with you today. As, as we bring this to lending, what parting wisdom do you want to offer to people listening to Create New Futures? 
Well, I think the future is yours to have. And, you know, don't waste a lot of time thinking about the future. Go out and live it because the future is today and it's tomorrow. Wonderful. Thank you so much. You're welcome. 